This is the intersection. The intersection. This is the Intersection Podcast for Saturday the 14th of January 2017, Episode 1, The Joy of Switch. The Intersection Podcast is only made possible through the support of its listeners and sponsors. If you have a product or service that you feel may appeal to our audience, please contact sponsor at intersectioncast.com. Hello and welcome. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the very first episode of the Intersection podcast. My name is Jonathan Wildman and I will be your main host. As this is a brand new show and you are a brand new audience, I figured that we should start things off with a little bit of a getting to know you introduction. I'm from London in the UK, that's where I'm based and where most of our episodes in future will be recorded from. Um... A little bit about myself. Um, by day, I am a systems developer for a large organisation. By night, I am a freelance web designer. And occasion, on part-time, um, I am an independent filmmaker. The main reason we decided uh, to do this podcast, well, I say we, I mean myself and a group of friends, is it's something we've been talking about getting started on and off for the best part of a year. We decided that this would be the best opportunity to do it right at the beginning of 2017 and just to finally get things off the ground. The main reason being, while there are plenty of podcasts out there, not many look at things from a UK perspective. And that's something that we found quite frustrating. Um, nothing more frustrating about hearing about products and services available to our friends in the United States, but not available to us or not available to us, at least in a straightforward way. So we'll be talking about the things that matter to you and telling you the ways you can access those things if they aren't immediately available. So a little bit about the podcast itself. We love technology. We consume it. We depend on it. It enriches our lives. We're slightly obsessive over it. And we're just as passionate about pop culture, from cinema to music to fashion and the other arts and beyond. Our modern day lifestyles are the intersection of all of these facets, which is why we bring you this podcast, essentially to bant and rant about the things that we're passionate about from a British perspective. We figure that um, this podcast will probably be a weekly, a weekly thing. Um, we're looking to bring you episodes every week and we're looking to bring them to you in a 45 minute to one hour format. The podcast will be available to you through all the usual channels, um, including the most popular one, that being iTunes. If you wish to find out more information about how to subscribe to our podcast and the many ways in which you can do that, or if you wish to listen to episodes uh, via your web browser, visit our website intersectioncast.com, where all new episodes will be announced as they are published. So on with the show. Um... Most weeks it will be myself flying solo uh, doing this podcast, but I am hoping to bring in some co-hosts uh, when they are available. And I'm also hoping to bring in some special guests. Um, so I will uh, kick things off for now and uh, go launch into our first topic, which is essentially celebrating 10 years, 10 years of a device that literally changed the tech game. 
Um, no matter how you may feel right now about the company who manufactured the device uh, or whether you, you root more for their rivals, um, it was a game changer. And that product is the iPhone. And so it was on January the 9th, 10 years ago in 2007, where Steve Jobs announced officially and unveiled the Apple iPhone. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these in your career. Apple's been very fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. In 1984, we introduced the Macintosh. It didn't just change Apple. It changed the whole computer industry. In 2001, we introduced the first iPod. And it didn't, just, it didn't just change the way we all listen to music. It changed the entire music industry. Well, today, we're introducing three revolutionary products of this class. The first one is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communications device. So three things, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod. <laughs> a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. The smartphone, which it wasn't the first smartphone, but nonetheless, it was the first mainstream smartphone that has changed the way in which we communicate with one another, in which we depend on technology on a day-to-day -day basis, and in which, in terms of the amount of power computing power we, we can carry in our pockets um 
it was January 9th when the iPhone was announced. And remembering that time, there was a lot of rumours floating around that Apple were to release the phone. Um, they did kind of dabble with that uh, by in the uh, Motorola Rocker E1, uh, which was a, a dumb phone or a feature phone that was released in uh, 2005 that could sync with iTunes. Essentially, you could have access to your iTunes library or as far as the um, the phone would allow you to in terms of storage. I think it was like a 100 song capacity or something. But nonetheless, you could sync playlists and it would play nice when connected to iTunes. I think Apple were really testing the waters, but that particular model phone wasn't very popular. But nonetheless, there was a lot of rumors going around that Apple were going to manufacture their own device. So I figured we'd begin things by looking back uh, whether you own an iPhone or not, but just looking back to the time when that phone was actually launched. And my memories of the first iPhone is that I was, I was, I was very impressed. Um, I had, at the time, already dabbled into Windows Mobile. And I was an HTC man back then. Um, and so the idea of a smartphone a phone that could pick up my emails, a phone that I could somewhat browse the internet with um, and do other things with, run basic applications, wasn't anything new to me. However, being a Windows mobile user, I was continually frustrated with the user experience that I had on my devices. Namely, I had to resort to installing custom ROMs and doing all sorts of hacks just to have some sort of coherent um, experience in using the device. Otherwise, everything was clunky. Um, little things irritated me, like the web browser couldn't really render a page properly. Emails would trip over if they had any HTML within them. Um, other little things annoyed me too, like the music player just didn't display um, playlists and album arts nicely, and I had to manually sync everything. And it was literally an exercise in frustration. But nonetheless, I, to me, it, it was nothing new. But when Apple announced the iPhone, to be honest with you, I was gobsmacked and I was gobsmacked at the UI. I was gobsmacked at how fluid everything was and how everything seemed to just work. And I remember specifically what impressed me the most after the demo was how nice emails were rendered, how nice web pages were rendered. And they actually did look like the real internet. And I remember Steve Jobs saying, not sort of the internet, not kind of the internet, but the internet. And I also uh, liked how the music player looked. I remember when Coverflow was uh, demoed and it just looked amazing. I mean, having access to all your music and flicking through the album art as you would flick through a pile of CDs at home blew me away. And I just thought, this is brilliant. This is exactly the sort of mobile experience I wanted, uh, but but it was really out of the box. I didn't have to dabble with custom ROMs and hack my device and do sorts of all sorts of nonsense. But I didn't actually go for the, the first iPhone. And the reason why I didn't actually go for that one was simply because it was out of my reach financially. Um, I wasn't deep within the Apple ecosystem then. I was pretty much a Windows guy. So I had no idea about how iTunes really worked and how I would move my large collection of MP3s, my music collection to iTunes. And, you know, I just wasn't an Apple person then. Um, and the iPhone admittedly did have one too many restrictions. 
at that point in time, the very first iPhone, there were no apps. There was no app store. So all you had were your Apple stock, stock apps, you know, uh, weather and stocks and email and Safari. You had nothing else. And for the cost of the phone, I found that ridiculous. Um, and also little things frustrated me like I couldn't expand storage if I wanted to. And I had quite a large music collection. So I decided not to go for the iPhone. Um, it it was too expensive for me. But I remember O2 in the UK were the carrier who had exclusive um, access to um, selling the iPhone. And I remember the launch day at uh, the phone went on sale everywhere at uh, 6.02 p.m. I believe there's a little bit of hype on launch day for that. But I was very, I was pretty much jealous. I had I, in the case of the green eyed monster whenever I saw friends who picked up the first generation iPhone because it did offer the, um, the user experience that I craved. So in terms of my Windows mobile devices, I stuck with them for probably a couple more years. Um, my first main Windows mobile device that I felt offered a similar experience to the iPhone in terms of features such as, you know, pinch and zoom in and, um, you know, just, just being a more sort of touch friendly experience that didn't rely so heavily on a stylus as were, you know, popular with Windows mobile devices back then, everything was stylus based, um, was the HTC Touch. Uh, that was a rather cute, small-sized um, touchscreen phone that I purchased, and it was, and you know, it, 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 the UI was was better than previous Windows mobile devices, but I felt, I still felt like it was a poor man's iPhone. I still felt like I've got probably the next best thing, not the best thing. Um, after that, I upgraded to the HTC Diamond, uh, which was a little bit better, a little bit uh, more beefy in terms of the performance of the the device. Uh, so it had that sort of fluidity that the iPhone did have, but again, it didn't have a consistent, coherent um, uh, user experience simply because you had stock Windows Mobile running un running underneath, and you had the essentially the the the, the shell operating system that HTC um, developed running on top. Um, so basically, after that, I figured, okay. I'm getting a little bit envious now. And it was after when Apple announced the App Store, they launched the App Store, the iPhone 3G was released. Then I thought, okay, I'm going to, I think I'm going to buy it. I'm going to try this out. Um, and it wasn't until the iPhone 3G that I actually jumped and I took a chance and I never looked back, to be quite honest. I've had nothing but iPhones since. Um, and, you know, back then there was little frustrations, um, you know, copy and paste wasn't available immediately. Sharing of files wasn't available immediately. But um, Apple have always kept sort of a tight sort of control of the user experience. So when they have offered certain features, they've done it right. They've done it in a way that has proven to be reliable and the way that just works. And I've always defended that. Um, I have defended that more so than the approach that other uh, manufacturers would take such as, for example, Samsung, who I sometimes say, throw spaghetti against a wall and just see what sticks. Um, I've always liked the way that Apple have only introduced features when they have completely mastered them. They're not always first to the party, but they tend to make the best impression. So those are my memories of the, brief, very briefly, my memories of the launch of the iPhone. And 
when I first sort of dipped into um, the Apple ecosystem for my first Apple product, which was the iPhone 3G, um, there have been, quite interestingly enough, as we've celebrated the 10th anniversary of the um, the iPhone, there have been a few leaks uh, of uh, prototype user interfaces uh, that have been that were developed for the iPhone. Because we say the, the that first Motorola phone uh, that offered uh, synchronization with iTunes didn't really offer an Apple-like experience. It didn't resemble the iPod at all. It was simply you had access to your iTunes playlist, etc., on what was a standard feature phone. So there was a number of interesting, and we heard rumors about this for years, but a number of interesting user interfaces uh, that were developed for the prototypes of the original iPhone, and one of which included uh, the a virtual click wheel. And it's in Sonny Dickerson's website. Uh, on his website, he uh, actually unveiled video, um, how he got this, I don't know, um, showing this user interface. Um, and what Apple essentially did was they they had a, a widescreen, as the iPhone does do, but they had a virtual click wheel at the bottom, and it pretty much looked like a standard iPod interface. And the idea was to have a virtual click wheel simply because they wanted a device, an iPod-style device, to offer to have a screen large enough to offer widescreen video. So that looked pretty good. I mean, it looked pretty nifty. If you could consider at the time, if you went from a standard iPod video to that, um, it would have been quite a, quite a bit of a jump. But the problem they found with that was there was no reliable way to make phone calls. So, um, and I've read a little bit about this, uh, they experimented in all different ways that they can make that work using the click wheel as some sort of uh, rotary dialing system or something like that. And there was actually an old Nokia, an old Nokia feature phone, and the model number escapes me right now, but uh, where the numbers, the which are hard keys, were arranged in a circular fashion. And Steve Jobs actually said to um, the engineers at, at Apple that, hey, make something like this that works better. And obviously they, they, they struggled with it. They failed to do it. So um, they decided that while they mastered the click wheel interface for navigating your, around, your way around the, uh, the, the, the phone itself and the, and, and, and the operating system of the phone itself, it just fell over for the simple task of actually making phone calls. Now, The Verge recently published a very good interview with Tony Fadell. Now, Tony Fadell, as many of you know, was sort of the father of the iPod. He was a designer at Apple, and he also worked on Apple's audio product strategy. Tony actually goes out of the way to set the record straight about the origins of iOS and the iPhone itself. First of all, Tony mentions that the video that has been leaked on Sonny Dickerson's site, which clearly shows a virtualized click wheel and iPod-style interface running on a what seems to be a prototype iPhone itself, wasn't actually running on a prototype iPhone. It seemed the concept of that particular user interface, having a virtualized click wheel, never made it past an emulator running on the Mac. Fidel claims that somebody is obviously in the interim ported the interface over onto an iPhone and recorded a video. He then goes into detail about the approach Apple took in terms of designing the user interface for the iPhone. And contrary to the rumours over the years that there are actually two competing teams, one led by Scott Forstall and the other one led by Fidel himself, 
They weren't actually competing against one another, but rather experimented on different types of ideas. Fidel's team was looking at the iPhone operating much like an iPod, with a virtualized click wheel and the navigation very much like an iPod at the time. Scott Forstall was working on a stripped-down version of OS X, which was the one that basically Apple went for and evolved into iOS as we know it. Now, The Verge interview is a fascinating read, and if you haven't done so already, I urge you all to check it out. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes, but it's particularly fascinating to look back at the origins of such an iconic product. to move on to the uh, subject of gaming and more specifically to discuss Nintendo. Now I've always been a Nintendo fan and I know that these days they're not quite as popular as they were in the 80s, that people in the UK I find tend to gravitate more towards um, the likes of Microsoft's Xbox or Sony's PlayStation brands because they offer a more quote unquote mature experience um even though i don't quite find ultraviolence mature but nonetheless um and nintendo's games are very much um they're heavily franchise based and and based on fantasy you know you have characters such as mario and and link from legend of zelda and 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 they are one thing you can say about nintendo is that their their brand is 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 very well known uh, the characters in the franchises, many of their games are very well known worldwide and have been known for generations. So with each generation, we get a new iteration of of game for that particular franchise. And Nintendo haven't really had much luck recently outside of the handheld space. The handhelds since the Game Boy uh, through to the Game Boy Advance and through to the DS and the 3DS have always been very, very successful extremely successful but they've tend to struggle in the home console space i would say since the nintendo 64 um and that's been for a number of reasons but nintendo have a, a very die hard fan base who love their titles who love their you know you're getting a triple a uh, experience when you buy a nintendo developed title and because of that um, Nintendo have had somewhat of an arrogant approach when it comes to third-party developers, in the case that so they don't actually need them. So in, t- in comparison to the likes of Sony and Microsoft, Nintendo machines haven't always been that easy to develop for, and Nintendo haven't gone out of their way to schmooze with the third-party developers and to get them on board, because Nintendo rely on their big titles that I've already mentioned. And so... The problem really, and I certainly find that over here, where everyone is into the likes of Final Fantasy and FIFA and games like that, um, is that Nintendo are lacking that third-party support, and it's affecting um, people's perceptions of, of, of their position in the video game industry, even though they've brought us many innovations. Um, now, the Wii was a huge success. I mean, it brought uh, motion controls to the mainstream, and... 
I remember at the time, literally everyone I knew bought bought a Wii, and you know everyone knew the Wii, and everyone played Wii Sports, and you know it, it was a huge success. Unfortunately, Nintendo's follow up to the Wii, the Wii U, wasn't quite as successful. And we have a Wii U in our household, but it was released very quietly um, in the UK, and there was a lot of confusion. Um, a lot of people I knew who were sort of more casual gamers didn't really understand that the Wii U was a new console, a more powerful console that offered different uh, titles and a different uh, gameplay experience through its uh, gamepad, which has a touchscreen integrated and you can sort of play it um, away from your TV, etc. Um, so it wasn't very successful because people felt, well, I've already got a Wii. I don't need another Wii. Um, and it didn't do too well. But there were some good titles on that. Some new franchises such as Splatoon were introduced. They finally brought us a sequel to Star Fox. Um, Smash Brothers on the Wii U is phenomenal. As is Mario Kart 8, which is an absolute riot to play. It's great fun when you've got a group of mates around at your house. All the online experience is, is brilliant as well. And that's something that was really good about the Wii U because Nintendo made much more of an effort to give us a good online experience. They introduced online communities um, through centered around the, the Mii avatars. And you could do things like share... Uh, screenshots and 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 video of your of, of your of your gameplay and you could do things like give tips and, and and advice and send little sketches and you know they put a lot of thought into it and it's such a shame to see that a lot of that went ignored with the U, wii u which was a commercial disaster i i think now the wii u was supposed to have one last triple a title and that was The Legend of Zelda, The Breath of the Wild, which looks absolutely stunning. Uh, if you get a chance to see a video of that online. Um, but it seems they're taking the same approach now which what they, as, as to what they did with the GameCube when it got to the end of its life. The GameCube was supposed to have, sort of as a farewell, The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. But the machine wasn't doing too well at the time. So Nintendo abandoned that uh, release and took it to their next console at the time, the Wii. And the same thing is happening with the Breath of the Wild. It seems like this is now going to be a launch title for their new console. Um, it will still be released on Wii U as uh, Twilight Princess was, was still released on the GameCube, but it, 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 it's sad that Nintendo can't uh, give their consoles a, a decent send-off, a decent farewell. They just tend to be abandoned and they move on to the next thing, which is slightly frustrating. But that next thing actually was introduced to us. It was introduced to us in 2016 and it came somewhat out of the blue. It was October 2016 when Nintendo revealed their next console called the Switch. Now, the Switch is takes an approach that had been rumoured Nintendo would take for some time because Nintendo have always been successful in the handheld space. It seems like they haven't been doing too well in the home console space. So there were rumors circulating that they would introduce a hybrid machine that could operate as both a home console and a handheld. And that's exactly what they've done with the Switch. Um, although they claim the Switch is primarily a home console. But the Switch is essentially a console that can plug into your TV, an HD console. Um, but it also has uh, an integrated screen on the controller. The actual, uh, so you have the screen which you can take away and operate as a handheld. And 
you can attach controllers to the side of the screen. So you basically get a handheld device that you can take away and play. And each separate side of the handheld device can detach and function as individual controllers when you are playing on your TV or using the integrated screen as almost like a portable TV. So it looks like an interesting concept and I'm not sure if it is going to supersede any plans for follow-up to the 3DS. Um, but it's certainly interested that Nintendo have gone down the, the hybrid route. So we actually received um, some specific launch details about the Nintendo Switch uh, during a live online stream from Tokyo on the 13th of January. Now this was at four in the morning, so only the, the hardcore Nintendo fans in the UK probably stayed up for that one, but it was quite comprehensive because it was about an hour and a half. And we revealed, we, they revealed some very specific details. So the Switch is actually gonna be released quite sooner than I thought. I anticipated that it would be released in the summer um, around the time of E3, but no, it's actually going to be released worldwide on the 3rd of March. Now the price of the Switch um, is going to be £279.99, so £280, which, although is cheaper than the launch prices of the PS4 and the Xbox One, is not as cheap as the current prices of those consoles. You can currently pick up an Xbox One, a basic Xbox One, for around £220, and PS4 around £250. So I think it's a case of Nintendo probably trying to take advantage of its um, its core fan base um, and prices will probably get a little bit more sensible around Christmas time. Um, but it's quite interesting to see that uh, the console is going to be available literally in, in a matter of a month or so. Just to give you a few uh, details uh, from the the announcement um there's some good little uh, bits of information here some of which we we didn't realize before it seems like they are really pushing on the multiple ways that you can play the switch and that all games all games have been designed to take advantage of playing the, your the get the switch in either tv mode which is the traditional way connect the console to the television in tabletop mode which is using the integrated screen as like like a portable TV, as I mentioned, or in handheld mode, which is just holding the thing like a handheld device for one player to control. So it seems like all, all games are going to take uh, those multiple modes into consideration. And the price point seems to be quite similar worldwide. It, it's going for 299 in the USA. So I'm not sure we in the UK are getting a great deal, but we're kind of used to that, especially post-Brexit, where there isn't much difference between the dollar and the pound. It seems like Nintendo's online service is has a few surprises. First of all, it's no longer free. They did mention that there will be a free trial of their online service uh, at some point at launch. And no details about how much it's going to cost after that trial expires and how long that trial is actually going to be. Now, that's disappointing because the Nintendo difference was to just keep things simple. So I'm not keen on signing up to an online subscription just to be able to play games of, on, on, online or to be able to take advantage of the online communities. It also seems that the online communications 
And they did mention things such as the sending of pictures and messages will be all done via a smartphone app. So presumably you have an Android device or you have an iPhone or something like that or a tablet running um, iOS or Android and you are able to communicate with fellow game players as you are playing the game. That sounds a little bit cumbersome to me. They didn't show a demo of this. Um, And it seems a bit strange because Nintendo have a lot of young fans and not all young fans have access to their own smart device. So I'm not quite sure how that one's going to work out as well. Um, A few uh, nice announcements, uh, one of which is region locking is a thing of the past. And it seems like Nintendo are abandoning this concept of tying things down to specific regions based on the fact that this is actually getting a worldwide release exactly the same time or regions. Battery life is going to vary when you run the device as in handheld mode. It's going to vary depending on the type of game you're playing and I guess how uh, you know what sort of system resources that game is using. And they Nintendo specifically said that it's going to run from between two and a half hours to six hours. Uh, they did give an example of Legend of Zelda game um, being able to you'll be able to run that one for three hours before recharge. I think that's quite poor. Um, I can't see that working out if you've got a long flight and you just want to play some games. So it does suggest to me that this is primarily uh, a home console. And although it can operate like a hybrid device, this isn't necessarily going to be a replacement for the 3DS. I would have thought battery life would have been more of a consideration if that was the case. The small controllers that click on to form the, the, the click onto the, 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 the screen with, to form the Nintendo Switch uh, are called Joy-Cons. And as I say, they separate from the screen to function as separate controllers when you're playing in TV mode, or they can act as a single controller when attached to the screen. So they each have trigger buttons and an analog stick and, um, and a D-pad. Now, they did mention the technology in these Joy-Cons, and there's a few surprises, actually. Um, they haven't completely abandoned motion controls. Uh, there are accelerometers within them, so we can still have Wii-type games. And in actual fact, they actually demoed um, some Wii-style games. Um, there's a party game called 1-2 Switch, which will be available at launch, a bunch of mini-games. Um, and it's it, it, it essentially shows people playing very much like a uh, like a Wii, but the difference is they were able to do things off screen. For example, they showed a quick draw challenge, you know, like in an old Western, uh, to see who could pull out the controller first and fire the button. Um, and they said their approach with that was they want people to be able to have fun and enjoy this device away from away from staring at the screen. Uh, as well as staring at the screen. So that seems quite interesting. Um, but the Joy-Cons have a lot of technology packed inside, as I say. Um, they've announced something new, which which, which we, didn't, had no, we weren't aware of before, called HD Rumble. Now, HD Rumble is it's a little bit more sophisticated than force feedback, standard force feedback. They mentioned specifically that you could rattle a Joy-Con almost like a, you're rattling a glass with ice and you can feel how many ice cubes are inside. They mentioned using the technology in that manner. And so that would open up um, new possibilities in terms of gameplay experiences. So 
it, it's nice to see Nintendo uh, still quite innovative and, and and I hope that they give us good examples of how this technology can be used. So that's HD Rumble. Uh, other highlights um, are the titles themselves. Um, uh, it's a game called Arms, which seems to be a fighting game, uh, much like it reminded me of Wii Sports Boxing, where you take the controllers, you take a pair of controllers and you sort of, you know, you swing your arms about and you extend your arms in, in, in battle as you're fighting. Well, Arms seems to be a, a game based on that concept and that it's a new franchise from Nintendo and it will be available at launch. And it seems like the Switch Joy-Cons have technology to know exactly where you're aiming. There are little cameras in each of them. Um, where you're aiming, how far away you are from the screen, etc. So that demos some of the technology too. They also announced uh, a sequel to Splatoon, which was a sleeper hit on the Wii U, uh, a very good franchise, I, I, I think, and a new Mario title. The new Mario title is called Super Mario Odyssey. It looks absolutely stunning. It's a 3D-based Mario game, and I see a lot of elements of previous 3D Mario games, such as Super Mario 64, Super Mario Sunshine, and Super Mario Galaxy. The concept of this one seems to be that uh, Mario um, will visit uh, many different types of worlds, and we see examples such as your typical sort of Mushroom Kingdom type world to almost real realistic planet Earth style worlds where you actually see people roaming around in the background, much like you do in, in something like Sonic Adventure on the Dreamcast. I mean, the game looks epic. Um, and the disappointing thing, though, was that they said it, it's going to be released in Christmas 2017. So I think it's a shame that, yet again, Nintendo don't have a Mario game at launch. And relying on Zelda as being a AAA title at launch, when that particular Zelda was really developed for the previous generation console, isn't a good sign in my book. Um, but as I say, I, th I think this is simply a case of Nintendo trying to take advantage of their hardcore fan base uh, and that the real launch of the Switch will probably be around Christmas time where there'll be more titles available and probably the price will be a little bit more competitive. And certainly with the uh, Switch, Nintendo's relationship with third-party developers seem to be a little bit more encouraging. There were a number uh, uh, making announcements during Nintendo's video presentation, including EA Sports. As you know, EA released one game on the Wii U, which was a very bad version of an old FIFA game and never released anything since. But it seems like Nintendo fans will be able to get hold of a new FIFA game. FIFA was announced. Uh, whether that will be FIFA 17 or later on in the year it will be FIFA 18, we don't know just yet. But they claim that it will take advantage of the Switch's unique features and portability. A little bit of gameplay was shown, but nothing more than four or five seconds. Other developers in the video presentation included Sega and Square Enix. Nintendo also announced a preview tour for the Switch, um, beginning six weeks prior to the worldwide launch. They announced this specifically for the USA, saying that each weekend the Switch will be available to play in a major US city. They haven't as of yet announced anything for the UK, but we'll keep you posted if we find anything out. It would be foolish of them not to offer something similar in the UK, considering the launch is only around the corner. So stay tuned.
Thomas's recent controversy concerning a Sky Arts comedy and their portrayal of Michael Jackson. Sky have announced a new series of 30-minute comedy dramas called Urban Myths, and I believe it's broadcast this Thursday at 9pm on the Sky Arts channel. The basic premise is that each episode would deal with an urban legend attached to a showbiz personality, many of which are deceased. The first episode, I believe, concerns a chance meeting between Bob Dylan and a plumber called Dave, when in fact Dylan was attending to visit Eurythmic star Dave Stewart in Crouch End. Subsequent episodes involve tales in including the likes of actor Cary Grant tripping on LSD with drug pioneer Timothy Leary, Adolf Hitler getting rejected from art school, and writer Samuel Beckett driving who would one day become WWF Hall of Famer Andre the Giant of all people to school way back in the day. However, the recent uproar concerns an episode called Elizabeth Michael Marlon involving, as you probably guessed it, Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando and Michael Jackson. And to give a little bit of context, in 2001, Michael Jackson did a series of concerts in New York City, specifically at Madison Square Garden, celebrating 30 years as a solo artist. And his friends, Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor, uh, were were special guests uh, in, in the VIP area during his performances. And in the case of Liz Taylor, I remember she actually introduced him and his brothers when they did the reunion performance. But nonetheless, they were there. And the story goes that when the September the 11th attacks happened, there was obviously a bit of a panic and there was no way to fly out, well, certainly no immediate way to fly out of New York. So Michael apparently had the idea that Marlon, Elizabeth and himself get in a car and take a road trip. And the rumour has it that they made it as far as Ohio by car. So... The thing with this Sky Art show is it deals with a series of urban myths and sort of reconstructs them in a what-if-this-really-happened approach. And as far as I know, the supposed myth about this particular trio of legends taking a long road trip across America is completely false. But while this notion certainly sounds quite amusing, it seems that... The real controversy lies in the production company's decision to cast Joseph Fiennes, a white British actor, as Michael Jackson. I've heard lots of discussion about this. When this was initially announced several months ago, Michael's fan base went ballistic and protested and sent letters of a complaint and just made a lot of noise. Deeply offended, saying that Michael Jackson would be completely insulted if a white actor was made to play him, because Michael Jackson, despite the way he looked, and we know now that he did suffer from vitiligo, was a black man, and was a proud black man. And people like to mention specifically the interview that Michael Jackson gave to Oprah Winfrey, which I believe was in the in the 90s, explaining that he would be horrified, horrified and insulted if they used a white actor to play him. He very much considered himself black. Now, <laughs> I have mixed feelings about this. I've heard different sides to this argument. 
I've heard people say that the decision to cast Vines as Michael Jackson is just as offensive as putting a white actor in blackface, which would be offensive. I've also heard a counter-argument that this is just in the name of fun, that it's no different to having Marion in Bo Selector ridiculing the likes of Craig David and um, Scary Spice Melanie B in an exaggerated sort of caricature manner. But the situation really came to a head this past week when members of the Jackson family on Twitter expressed their outrage and their offence at this casting decision. Quoting here from Paris Jackson, Michael's daughter, she says, I'm so incredibly offended by it, as I'm sure plenty of people are as well, and it honestly makes me want to vomit. She then talks about how it also insults her godmother, Elizabeth Taylor, and how that offends her just as much. Tarch Jackson, of Free Tea fame, goes on to say, Unfortunately, this is what my family has to deal with. No words could express the blatant disrespect. It seems that these very public comments from Michael's family has prompted Sky to pull the episode. We did get a little bit of a peek of the episode during a commercial that they were showing on TV promoting the show. And you probably see two or three clips with Fines as Michael Jackson and you don't hear much from him. I think he has one line of dialogue in, 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 in the commercial. But Sky decided to pull the show and Sky's comments are as follows. We've taken the decision not to broadcast Elizabeth, Michael and Marlon, a half-hour episode from the Sky Arts Urban Myth series in light of the concerns expressed by Michael Jackson's immediate family. We set out to take a light-hearted look at reportedly true events and never intended to cause any offence. Joseph Fiennes fully supports our decision. Now, I myself, I've always been a huge Michael Jackson fan and I've been hugely defensive of Michael Jackson, who, who was an incredible artist, will probably never see anyone as talented as him, as a showman, as a singer in our lifetime. He, he was a complete package on stage and... I've always been defensive, as I said, and I've always been appalled with the amount of flack that the tabloids have given him and still give him and the crude jokes that are attached to him. And people have often asked me my opinion and my thoughts on this show and whether Sky were being offensive and whether the right decision was made to pull the episode. My thoughts of the matter are as follows. I don't actually believe that they set out to target Michael Jackson. I've seen examples where the press uh, certainly have set out to target Michael Jackson and to really kill him, but the very nature of this show is just a series of urban myths concerning a variety, a variety of people, a variety of artists, and they didn't specifically target him. And jokes aside, everything with Michael Jackson in his life and certainly in his death is magnified. 
And I think this is just a case of it being too soon. Too soon for his huge fan base across the world. Way too soon. And I think it was slightly short-sighted, not necessarily disrespectful, but short-sighted of, of the production company not to get the approval of Michael Jackson's estate before even committing to shooting this episode. But as Sky have decided to pull it, kudos to them, I believe they've done the classy thing. But that's about all we have time for for now. Um, this was somewhat a micro-episode, and we will certainly be back covering more items and more topics in future, bringing along some co-hosts and special guests. I'm off to get ready now for a masquerade birthday party, and as a glasses where I'm having a little bit of problem finding a suitable mask. So there seems to be a gap in the market there. But I thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much. It is appreciated. Please do subscribe as things will get bigger and better. You can find more information about the topics and news stories that we've covered in today's episode within our show notes. And remember, you can leave your comments and feedback for us in a variety of ways. You can email feedback at intersectioncast.com. You can go to our website, intersectioncast.com, and leave your comments on our message board. You can go to our Facebook page. You can find us at facebook.com slash intersectioncast and leave your comments there. Or you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com and our username is Let's Intersect. If you have any specific questions or any issues or things that you want us to cover on an episode, um, contact us on Skype. You can reach our Skype voicemail. Our username is feedback at intersectioncast.com. Leave us a message. We'll cover it on air and we'll credit you fully. I'm your host, Jonathan Wildman, signing off episode one of The Intersection. Until the next time, that's a wrap. The Intersection.